Thanks for listening to the Best of Coast to Coast podcast. Become a Coast Insider, and you can hear this complete conversation as well as recent shows featuring guests discussing new cases of the troubling cattle mutilation phenomenon, worrisome instances of clandestine CIA torture, and the evidence that the lost city of Atlantis may have really once existed. Check out these programs and many other fascinating episodes waiting for you in the Coast to Coast Archive by heading over to coasttocoastam.com and signing up for Coast Insider. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Boston gangster James Whitey Bulger's medical classification was suddenly and inexplicably changed to suggest his health had improved leading to his transfer to that West Virginia prison where he was murdered. Two organized crime figures from Massachusetts suspected of killing him have been placed in isolation at the U.S. Penitentiary, Hazleton, while federal investigators work to build the case. Now, back in 2015, there was a movie called Black Mass starring Johnny Depp, who played the part of Whitey Bulger. You got two minutes. All right, I'm going to come right to it. I have it on very good authority that Gennaro Injulo is planning to have you murdered. Is that so? And how does he plan to achieve that? That's the kind of information that my side gets. And that's the kind of information that we can provide. John, do you know what I do to rats? It ain't ratting, Jimmy. It's an alliance. An alliance between me and the FBI. No, between you and me. T.J. English is a noted journalist, screenwriter, author of the New York Times bestseller Havana Nocturne, Patty Whacked in the Savage City, as well as Where the Bodies Were Buried, Whitey Bulger and the World That Made Him. His screenwriting credits include episodes for the television crime dramas and NYPD Blues, The Blues and Homicide, for which he was awarded the Humanist Prize. And uh, let us check in with T.J. English. T.J., welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here. You too. Were you shocked when you heard the news about Whitey Bulger getting murdered uh, in prison? No, I really wasn't. I don't think anyone who followed the story of Whitey Bulger was shocked. I mean, we were all surprised in a way that he lived as long as he did, that he wasn't killed by somebody before that. But the reason was they had him in isolated lockup um, for the previous years that he's been in prison. And it wasn't until this recent prison move that he was put out in the open in general population, though, that so that someone could kill him. There's a lot of questions that need to be answered about that. But I think for many people who followed the Bulger story, it seemed almost like a logical and fitting ending to a very violent life. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. He died at the age of 89. They gouged out his eyes, or at least tried to, and cut off his tongue. Were they trying to send somebody a message, TJ? Well, the gouging of the eyes and the cutting out of the tongue is a common uh, way that um, snitches get murdered, informants, rats. So that's the message I believe they were trying to send. And I think they, they were just sending that message to the world. I mean, I think the interesting thing about his death is, uh, you know, he was 89 years old with a heart condition. Um, if I were a if I were a mob hitman and I was assigned my my first hit, I hope it's an 89 year old man with a heart condition in a wheelchair, 
because that couldn't have been too difficult of a hit to pull off. They could have just let him, he would have died in another six to 12 months. So they decided to kill him. And I think what that was is that to the criminal underworld and to the people within the criminal justice system who had a grudge against Whitey Bulger, and there are many, um, the idea of Whitey Bulger dying of natural causes was offensive to them. Yeah. And so somebody took matters into their own hands. Now, now Whitey, of course, was the hitman for the mob in Boston. What did he do, TJ, for the mob to get so ticked off at him? Well, he informed on them. Uh-huh. He, he was an informant for the FBI for, for close to 20 years. And his relationship with the FBI was based on on him feeding them information specifically about the Italian mafia. And uh, the irony of all that is, is that Whitey didn't really know that much about the Italian mafia in Boston or New England. He got his information from his partner, Steve Fleming, who was Italian and did have a relationship with the mafia. And Whitey Bulger would get information from Steve Fleming and feed it to his FBI handlers and make it look like he had some kind of inside information on the Italians. So when Whitey Bulger was finally arrested and put on trial in 2013, very dramatic trial that I that I wrote about for the book Where the Bodies Were Buried, um, that all came out in the wash in great detail about Whitey's uh, relationship with the FBI and his feeding information to the FBI to make cases against the mafia. Well, when he was arrested in Santa Monica, California, outside his apartment in 2011, who who got him? Because the feds obviously were, were working with him, right? No, by that point, the relationship had ended. Ah. He, had, he had his relationship with the FBI, but not with other law enforcement agencies. So in the early 1990s, the Massachusetts State Police and the DEA were building a case against Whitey Bulger. And they came, they were coming to get him in 1995. And his FBI handler, John Connolly, who had been his, his liaison in the FBI, who had since retired but was still helping Bulger out, tipped him off that the uh, that he was going to be arrested, and that's when Whitey Bulger went on the run, and, and his relationship with the FBI. He had been closed as an informant by then, anyway. What was going on with his childhood, uh, TJ, to make him go the way he went? Well, he was an old. He was the oldest in the family, and uh, and his father had a, an industrial accident when when he was when the boys were young. And he lost a leg, and he became uh, disabled and wasn't able to really provide for the family. And the theory is that uh, among the armchair psychologists is that Bulger uh, was um, affected by his father's weakness and inability when he became handicapped and determined that he would never be in a position of vulnerability like that or, or any kind of position of vulnerability. So he went out into, into the world and started to take matters into his own hands. He became a professional criminal pretty early in life, around the age of 16. He, he started uh, robbing banks. He became a, a bank robber in his late teens and early 20s. Um, and he was very devoted to this life of crime. And he got caught out in Indiana 
1965 and wound up being sentenced to prison. And uh, he did his time in prison. And when he got out, he went right back into the came right back to Boston and went right back into the criminal life. And in fact, that's when he became a more organized form of criminal. He joined a criminal gang and became part of the criminal underworld in Boston. But he was very dedicated um, to the concept of being a criminal, and he didn't really waver from that ever. Where did he get his nickname, Whitey? Was it because of his white beard? His 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 hair was blonde, very blonde from early in life. That's how he got the nickname Whitey. If you, uh, I, I, well, I don't know. Did you ever have a chance to interview him? No, he's never submitted to an interview with anyone. Um, I tried. I wrote him letters before his trial and after his trial because I knew he was <laughs> something of a fan. When he was arrested in Santa Monica in 2011, and I confiscated all his belongings. One of his belongings was uh, a book that I wrote called Paddywhack. That's right. Oh, yeah. Great book, by the way. History of the Irish-American Gangster. Whitey Bulger is mentioned in that book. In fact, uh, Bulger was still on the run when I wrote it, and I used Bulger as sort of a framing device in that book, opened the book r- referring to him and then ended the book referring to him. His copy of the book that they confiscated, all the sections in the book, that were about him were underlined and highlighted. Um, that's the kind of guy he was. He took a very active interest in how he was being presented in the popular media. And I'd also been told that he was a fan of the very first book I ever published, a book called The Westies, which was about the Irish mob in neighborhood in New York called Hell's Kitchen. And they were a hyper-violent organization that cut up the bodies of their murder victims and made the bodies disappear. And apparently, Bolger was... Fascinated with that book, I was told by the woman he lived with for 30 years, not the woman he went on the run with, but the woman he was his common-law wife, Teresa Stanley. I interviewed her a couple times, and she said he was always up late reading that book, even though she she knew that he had read it and finished it once already. But he would sit up at night reading it. And also a couple of his underlings, including uh, Kevin Weeks, who was his right-hand man for many years, said that he used to give him that book and, and, and almost assign it as a homework assignment and tell them <laughs> to read it. And when I met his lawyer at the RICO, the racketeering trial, introduced myself, the lawyer said, yeah, I know who you are. When I, he said, when I took Bo- Whitey Bulger's case, the first thing he did was hand me two books. One was a military history book, and the other one was the Westies. And he, he said, you need to read these two books if you want to know about my mindset as a criminal. So um, I, 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 had, I, I thought I had a fan out there, and I wrote him. And, uh, but by the time I wrote him, he probably figured out I'd gone over to the other side because I'd been interviewing people who had once been his associates who were now enemies of his, mm-hmm. including Kevin Weeks and a couple others. And so he figured I'd become friendly with these guys, and I was talking to them, and uh, by then he didn't want to have anything to do with me. You're a journalist. You want to get all the sides. Oh yeah, no, I would. <laughs> I was. Uh, I made my case in the letter that I sent him, telling him, "Look, I'll be fair. Um, you know, I'll hear what you have to say." But you have to understand, Whitey Bulger went to jail, never admitting to any of these crimes. He actually went to jail denying that he had ever been an informant for the FBI, which was kind of outlandish, given all the documentation. 
that showed that he was an FBI informant. So he was a man who uh, preferred to live in a delusionary state of being. And even if I had gotten an interview with him, I don't think it would have been very fruitful because he he wouldn't have admitted. He's, he went to his grave denying publicly that he did a lot of the criminal activity that he did, especially the murders, and particularly the murders of two women that he strangled to death with his bare hands. Um, he was never going to admit his guilt in those crimes, and he was, he was never going to admit his guilt in general. He just wasn't the kind of guy who could examine himself in that way and be honest with himself or with anybody else. Do you think he was in uh, denial, TJ? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Um, you know, I've interviewed a lot of criminals over the years, writing a lot of different kinds of crime books. Um, and you meet all types. You do meet all types. You know, there's the obvious sociopathic types that operate in the criminal world. But there's also <clears throat> surprisingly intelligent guys. And there's people who got into it almost by accident. And you just you meet all personality types that wind up in the criminal world. Bolger had many characteristics that were admirable, many admirable leadership qualities, and he was a very well-disciplined person. He was a health nut, a health buff, and he did read a lot. He was a reader, and he had a didn't have much formal education, but by most accounts, he had a sharp mind. Um, so he was not a man without uh, admirable qualities. And in fact, if he had chosen a different course in life, there's a pretty good chance he would have been successful at it as a businessman or as, as something other than a gangster. But he committed these horrific crimes over the years and got away with it. And I believe that he and his partner entered into a state of delusionary delusions of grandeur, believing that they could murder at will and get away with it because they did for a long period of time. Right. And I don't, I just, I guess psychologically, when a guy goes that far out there, maybe he's not able to bring himself back from that and uh, address himself and the world around him with any kind of reality. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.